You're listening to On Human Rights, where we talk to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law. We're broadcasting from the Rao Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Loon, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Today we have a special interview for you. A few weeks back, RWI's Ellen Hasselbach interviewed Jan Liasson. Liasson was Minister for Foreign Affairs in 2006 and was the Swedish ambassador to the UN for several years. He has served as Special Envoy to Darfur, Sudan, and as President of the UN General Assembly. Then in 2012, Liasson was appointed Deputy Secretary General of the UN. Enjoy this interview. Thank you so much for joining us, Jan. Thank you very much. Uh, so you've recently finished your stint as Deputy Secretary General of the UN. What is the next step for Jan Eliasson? Well, I've taken a piece of good advice from uh, former Prime Minister Ingvar Karlsson, uh, who told me when I told him that I would leave at the end of last year, that take it easy for three months, uh, think about the different offers that you may have, ask yourself uh, what you absorb from your time at the UN and what you want to deal with for the future. And I'm right in the midst, or rather now coming close to the end of my first three-month period. So I am focusing on a few uh, major issues. So one is uh, the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, another one is the uh, discussion that goes on on migration and, uh, and integration, uh, the internationalization of our societies. And uh, the third and last one is a bit vague, but I have a sense that there is a need for all of us to think about the strength of our democratic institutions and the direction that we go uh, ahead of us right now. Mm-hmm. I, that ties into my other question, that what do you see as the greatest challenges for both human rights, but also for the international community today? Well, I think we have uh, a very important period ahead of us uh, where we... Uh, will test the uh, strength of our values and also text, uh, test the strength of our, and beauty of our democratic societies. Uh, I think we have a lot at stake now in terms of proving the idea of international cooperation and solidarity. I think we have a great test ahead of us on the uh, strength and beauty of diversity in our societies. And I think also that we... Uh, need to ask ourselves uh, what direction we go in a world where the fear factor, uh, the intention by some to uh, bring about division and and, um, polarization by dividing people into us and them, whether we will go that road or whether we will come back to something which is very basic to anyone who deals with human rights, namely the equal worth, equal value of every human being. So that is a challenge. And uh, then, of course, I'm very proud that in the UN we have now moved more uh, in a more determined way to make sure that we don't make a false distinction between the work on peace and security on the one hand, development on the other hand, and human rights on the uh, third hand, if there is a third hand. Uh, I think there is no peace without development. There is no development without peace. And none of the above without respect of human rights. These constitute three pillars for any society and, of course, for the for international order. And if one of these pillars is weak, the whole structure is weak. 
So this means that we have to work with peace and security, development and human rights at the same time, working horizontally and much less vertically in silos. Uh, the key to success for the future, in my view, is the degree to which we understand that we need to work together horizontally, bring in the different actors around the problem and then try to solve them. Those who want to go down in their own sector, in their own silo, will just dig themselves deeper and deeper into the hole. I think the secret to success is the fact that we need to combine human rights with peace and security and development. And you mentioned this fear factor, and it's it's no doubt that we live in a world today that is plagued by num- uh, a number of armed conflict and unimaginable human suffering. How have you managed to stay hopeful and to find strength to work with these issues? It's a combination of instinct and experience, I think. Uh, I've seen so much horror, I've seen so much suffering, I've seen so much death that I have tried to talk myself into uh, the fact that you also, in times of difficulties and times of despair, should try to uh, tell yourself, this is a provocation. I'm being exposed to people who are causing this horror around me. They will not bring me down. Uh, I feel that uh, more sound feeling is anger rather than depression. And uh, I have been trying to tell myself, if I have an uphill battle, fine, you learn more, you get stronger uphill, and life is full of ups and downs, and you have to draw energy from the downs and the ups, both of them. Uh, and uh, in a strange way, I think my determination, my will has taken over my emotions on this point. I don't want to just feel that I'm depressed and that I will give up hope. So uh, everything I do ends on the note of hope, even if it's a horrible state of affairs around us. I must tell you, I was just thinking of a nice line that I probably will use tonight at the meeting with the students. Uh, It is Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, uh, but Martin Luther, the real Martin Luther, who in the 16th century was told that the world would go under, that it would be destroyed a certain year. And the uh, very down-to-earth Martin Luther was asked about this uh, in Germany. Uh, and he uh, answered, uh, what, what about this threat of the world going under? And Martin Luther answered, even if the world will go under tomorrow, I will plant my apple tree today. And I think that is very much something we have to think about. It looks dark around us, but always we've got to do what we can do. Nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. I think uh, you mentioned this quote by Martin Luther, and I have a quote by you that I like, uh, when you said that you're an optimist that worries a lot. (laughs) Can you explain what you mean by this? Well, I I try to, uh, as I said, after making a a, a realistic analysis of how things are, and usually you end up with a pretty dark picture, uh, I still always try to say, what can we do about it? And uh, I sort of identify areas of action where we could do something. Uh, If you see the whole problem, you turn very uh, scared and you might turn off television. I don't want to see it. It's too much. But if you sort up the problem in its different parts, you realize that if you just accept working with one part, then you can make progress. And if others do similarly, they can also make progress. But uh, recently I've noticed that my optimism has been more subdued uh, because of 
the character of conflicts because of the growing inequalities, because of the unspeakable human rights uh, violations and, and the disregard of international humanitarian law. And all this made me say spontaneously on one occasion when someone asked me, are you an optimist or a pessimist? I said, well, the way I feel now, I'm an optimist, but I'm a worried optimist. Mm. So that's how it, <laughs> how it originated. I like it. Uh, one, of your, one of the issues that is very close to your heart is the fight for clean water and sanitation. Could you uh, tell us a bit more about this work and why it is so important? First of all, I think it's a reminder to us which we need to keep very high up on our, in our attention. And that is that economic, social and cultural rights are also human rights. We tend in the Western world to put an emphasis, which I understand, on the uh, civil and the political rights. But uh, it's very important for the credibility of the human rights system, particularly in poor countries and, and countries with uh, growing problems with ethnic divisions and so forth, that you really also look at the uh, social, economic and cultural factors. The other one is that I, in an early age, uh, in an early stage of my life, went to areas in Africa, it was the Horn of Africa at the time, where I saw what the lack of clean water meant. I saw children die in front of me out of dehydration, uh, diarrhea, dysentery. Uh, I saw the, the horrible effects on crops and life, life for people who lived on a dollar, a dollar and a half a day. It was a difference between life and death. And I said to myself, should this really be such a big problem to create clean water sources and to clean up, to make sure we have sanitation programs, that we fight the open defecation, that we create more education facilities on hygiene, and growingly that we understand more and more that water is a scarce resource, and water can either be a reason for conflict or a reason for cooperation. And that led me to make water one of my main issues uh, for 25 years, I've put this very high up. I used it when I was uh, head of humanitarian affairs in the UN, uh, when I was president of the Assembly, and when I was leaving my post in the Swedish government as foreign minister, I was part of the creation of Water Aid Sweden, an NGO which is doing a great job. So it's there with me, and uh, I will continue to work with it as long as I can. In fact, I promised myself when I saw a child die in front of me in Africa, in Somalia, that I would never give up on water. Another issue that you spend a lot of time of your professional career is mediation. And you've mediated in conflicts in Darfur and between Iran and Iraq. What do you have you found being the main keys for a successful mediation? <laughs> <laughs> if you can give us some yeah, tips. Well, well, first of all, you've got to be very knowledgeable. Sometimes you need to hide it a little bit so mm. that they don't get fooled. Uh, and you don't sort of... Uh, you should know your dossier extremely well. A lot of hard work in that. But then uh, I have uh, discovered four reasons to f why you fail or why you succeed, and I have examples of both. Uh, it was actually together with a, a colleague of some of your professors here in Lund, in Uppsala. I hope I can mention that name without any problems. It's okay for now. Uh, Peter Wallenstein, and he challenged me and said, why don't you try to find out if you look back at your mediations, and it's, I've been involved in six different mediations, what are the reasons you fail or succeed? And I have, in very simple and short terms, listed these four reasons. One, 
your uh, knowledge and even love of language, of words. You should collect words because words are our most important tool. And by that I mean also learning languages so that you speak at least one or two other languages fluently and that you collect words so, because words are our tools. The second reason is uh, for failure or success is timing. Diplomacy is extremely much about timing. Not to do things too late, of course, which is well known, but also not to do things too early. The third reason is cultural sensitivity. The respect of other cultures, the uh, need to connect to the other side, understand what are the reasons why he or she feels the way they do, what are the causes of the problems, from which area does this ruler come, uh, what are the clans, and what is the ethnic uh, style, ethnic uh, character, religious character of this uh, part of the country. All these things that constitute respect of the other side. You can't just come in with your own values, your own background, and think that they will approach you. You have to come in under their skin. And it's uh, fun. It's not something that uh, you should do in any manipulative way. It's really wonderful to be curious and learn more about other cultures, history, tradition. The last uh, reason is your personality and the way you connect and very basic human uh, qualities like uh, honesty and truthfulness and uh, trust that comes from knowing that you are inspired only by bringing about peace and there is no other interest. So if you succeed on all these four counts, you're in good shape. And at, at least you need to know, I think, these are the categories to think about. It's not only uh, valid, I think, for mediation. It's also valid for negotiation. It's valid for diplomacy. And if I may say so, it might even be useful in your private life. You have had a very long career. And you've, of course, met a lot of people and many, quotation marks, important people. But is there a particular meeting or a particular person that has stayed with you that you will never forget? <laughs> well, I, either I choose my favorites, my friends <laughs> who have inspired me, uh, or I choose those whom I've seen do a lot of evil and mm. uh, who ended their lives in a very tragic fashion. In the last category, I remember my negotiations with Saddam Hussein in Iraq. I remember my meetings with Gaddafi in Libya. And I could uh, list a number mm. of people in that category, uh, unforgettable memories, but also a sense that in the end I knew there would be a tragic ending of their, of their lives. And uh, of course that also happened. Uh, on the other side, people who have inspired me and who have you know, influenced me tremendously. One person I never met, uh, but he is of course very crucial for me in my life, at the, both as a Swede and as a UN public of, uh, official. And that is, of course, Dag Hammarskjöld. Uh, another person whom I did not meet either, but who means very much for me, is Raoul Wallenberg. I have spent a lot of my professional career in looking into his fate, and uh, I am still involved in matters related to Raoul Wallenberg. I think it's extremely important we keep their memories alive, both Raoul Wallenberg and, and uh, Dag Hammarskjöld. Another person whom I worked with, who also made quite an impression on my life, was Olof Palme the prime minister who was uh, the uh, negotiator in Iran, Iraq, and who was a fiery, uh, very temperamental uh, person who brought Sweden uh, out to the world and who also had qualities that reminded me that you also have to agitate. You can't just be uh, official. You need to also have a little bit of passion together with compassion. 
And then uh, in most recent times, I've become very close friend to uh, Kofi Annan, whom I served with very closely. In fact, I worked with five secretaries general, and the last being Ban Ki-moon. So it's a mix of uh, great friends and uh, inspiring people I met, and uh, I would say examples that uh, are such that you uh, should not follow their line or path. Uh, when I've done my research for this interview, I've come across many of these quotes and personal models of yours. And another favorite is that you said that your personal credo is passion and compassion. Yeah. Can you explain what you mean by this? It's very simple. Um, first of all, I love the expression, and I think I coined it. I think so too. Because it's uh, in Swedish, it's passion or mer chancellor, but it's so much better in English. Yeah. Passion and compassion. It really is. And uh, my simple conclusion uh, from my whole professional and personal life is that nothing in life happens without passion. If you do something in a lukewarm way, no convincing, no soul in it, no determination that this is important for you, nothing happens. You need to have a passionate relationship to the problems and the issues that you have in front of you and uh, be, be, be full, a full human being. But also compassion. If you only have passion, uh, you have risk that you do it, that you, you, without compassion, the wrong things happen. If passion goes in the direction of dictatorships and fascism and the kind of phenomena we see around us now in political life in the United States and Europe, for instance, then I get scared. So the combination of passion and compassion tells me that, yes, passion, fine, but also compassion. Every human being is equal value. Standing up for the UN Charter, for the principles and the values laid down or universal declaration of rights and your own ethics that I have also from my upbringing, upbringing and my parents. We've talked about the situation in the world today. What, what, will you, what do you see as the main differences between the world where you started your international career all those years ago and the world we see today? Well, I, I, I must say... And this is a challenge to you who belong to the ne next generation. When I grew up, uh, I grew up under very simple circumstances, and I saw my own situation grow. I saw my education being continued. I saw society getting better. Uh, we moved from one room to two rooms in my hometown. I got saw the first bathroom in my life at age 10, I graduated as a first student, uh, and I entered the uh, Navy uh, for a couple of years, and I went to school economics in Göteborg, Gothenburg, and then I entered the Foreign Service, and all the time I felt my own life being improving, both sort of in terms of the challenges that I had to accept, we had to, uh, to, to meet, but also in terms of standard of living and Even if I grew up during the Cold War, I saw that democracy and the uh, society of internationalism and um, diversity and tolerance was a society that was going to prevail. And so in a way, when the wall tumbled down in 1989, it wasn't such a big surprise. It was a, this historical optimism that I think we who were raised in the 1940s uh, saw around us after the horrible period, 1930-1945, which is one of the darkest chapters in human history. And this continued over the 90s because we saw the change in the old Soviet Union turning into Russia and hopefully the Russia going the way of democracies. But 
Of course, that hasn't been the case to the degree that many of us had hoped. But now I must say, the last few years I have discovered some new tendencies which are very worrisome, where I ask myself, will we continue on that historical optimism standing up for democracy and the values that should guide us? Or will we be falling victims to those who want to scare us, those who want to divide societies, polarize societies, and do it for their own political gain? Uh, and by that, we will lose the flavor and, and, and the whole meaning of this progress that I was hoping so much for. So that's why I think you and you're in the generation now and we who are handing over the baton to you really have to take this challenge seriously and uh, stand up for basic uh, human rights, stand up for justice, stand up for tolerance, stand up for diversity, even if it's not an easy thing. You know, we have in Europe... Uh, seen particularly a great flow of refugees and migrants, and uh, that has caused a lot of political uh, commotion, as you know. But you have to see this not as a huge problem, but rather see it as a as a huge challenge, a chance for us to see how we can manage this, uh, even if it's not easy. We need to focus it with a with a sense of. Uh, of, of realism uh, and not succumb to uh, the fear factor. So I must say that's why perhaps the phrase uh, I'm an optimist but I'm a worried optimist is so appropriate uh, today. Thank you so much for joining me today, Don. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Ellen Hasselbach from the Rao Wallenberg Institute interviewing the former Deputy Secretary General of the UN, Jan Eliasson. On Human Rights is broadcast from the Rao Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Loon, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll be back soon with more talking to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law.